Welcome to Building a Movement, the podcast where we talk with the innovators who are transforming the world of construction to build a zero-carbon future, a future that stands in balance with nature for everyone. I'm your host, Josh Dorfman, and today we're joined by Eric Corey Fried, an accomplished American architect, speaker, and designer of regenerative buildings at Canon Design, one of the top 10 largest and most impactful architecture firms in America. Eric, welcome to Building a Movement. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Well, the weather has held, and so we can record the podcast today. Um, we did have some troubles uh, earlier in the week. It must have something to do with a changing climate, and yet here we are. Yeah. Can I just say it's a little ironic, maybe, that we tried to record this before, and kind of the climate got in the way? That's, that seems, you know, telling. Telling, I may per- perhaps apropos. Yes, and yet all, all the all the more urgency for the the conversation we are going to have together right now. So, I want to jump in, and I, I want to talk about get your lens on you know whether it's your work at Canon Design or generally your view on the industry today. But what what excites you about about what you're doing and, and what you see happening today? There's so much there's so much going on in this industry right now. It's kind of incredible and at the same time not surprising, right? Uh, you know, anybody who's been in sustainability for any period of time, I think we're finally at the point where we've wanted to be for a long time where we understand the impacts of our actions, we understand how to be more transparent about it. We you know, there's a whole slew of amazing exciting materials that are very exciting. Yeah, we're able to quantify and calculate these impacts. Um, we're able to measure them and see how they start to affect outcomes. I mean, but if in answer to your question, <laughs> uh, simply put, the work I'm doing now today is to me the most exciting I've done in 35 years of practice. And what we're doing quite simply is we're designing buildings to have an effect on your biology. We're designing buildings that deliberately trigger and elicit specific physiological responses in your body to improve whatever outcomes we're targeting. So if we're designing a school, we can boost student performance. If we're designing a cancer center, we can boost health performance and health outcomes. If we're designing a workplace, we can even boost collaboration outcomes. But we're designing these buildings to target your biology. And I think that's it's the simplest way to say it, and it's the most exciting thing I think that I've ever done. And how is that related to building a more sustainable building? I mean, are those things, do they necessarily go hand in hand? Yeah. Um, not only do they go hand in hand, but in, in my mind, uh, they're, they're the next logical advancement of sustainability. And here's, here's, here's where my head is at, right? My, uh, you know, for, for 30 plus years, I've been trying to find different ways to convince clients, to convince contractors, to convince the larger industry of how to build pathways to a zero carbon building. Well, now we're on those pathways, right? For 100% of the buildings that we're doing at Canon Design, we're doing energy modeling. For 100% of those buildings, we're doing embodied carbon calculations to find and source better materials. We're exploring a whole wealth of alternative, you know, carbon sequestering natural materials. So all that's great and underway, and my head started thinking, well, what's the, where's the puck going to be? Let's skate to where the puck's going to be, as Gretzky used to say. And um, the next logical evolution of sustainability for me was getting down to 
almost a cellular level of the buildings impacting one's own physiology. So it's, it's to me, it's um, at the same time, yes, we're still maintaining how do we get to low carbon, zero carbon buildings that are truly responsible for their impacts and truly regenerative and restorative. But then as I started going through this with the team, what does it mean to be regenerative? What does it mean to be restorative? Isn't that, you know, if, if we're going to look at a healthy building, isn't that a building that's not just benign, but rather the more time you spend in it, the better you feel that somehow the building is part of the treatment, part of the healing. And so to me, it's the next evolution of, of where we're at. So we have an entire industry that's now on board with zero carbon buildings. And my head is like, okay, what's next? And that's, that's where I am now. Let me unpack that for a little bit. What does that mean to say that the building heals you um, or the, the building cre can create more collaboration? Uh, is that about designing a space? Is that about the materials themselves? Like, what does that mean? Is it a holistic view? Is it, is it just all of the above? Yeah. Short, answer, short answer is yes. But if you think about it, yeah, if you think about it on a bigger level, what, you know, the, the old joke, at least it's my old joke. <laughs> the old joke is that architecture is the world's second oldest profession, right? The first being something else. But, you know, we date back to 5,000 years BC and Imhotep building the pyramids. Like we're, you know, architecture is an old profession, world's second oldest profession. And our kit of parts for that entire time, all of modern, you know, all of like recorded human history has been color and contrast and daylight and form and compression and tension and pattern and view and sound and smell and right it's it's been in our toolkit forever and so what we're really doing is we're connecting the dots what we're finding is that if we're going to make a wall purple let's not do it because we like purple but rather because we know the specific physiological effect that purple would have on a cancer patient if we're going to make a a, a space with a you know a compressed feeling Let's design that because we know the effect that it'll do in their brain. So here's a simpler way to put it. 100% of the people arriving at the cancer center are terrified, right? They're either about to get a diagnosis that's going to change their life, or they're about to embark on treatment that's going to change their life. So everybody arriving there is terrified. And so the team and I were talking about it and, and thought, what if we could design the lobby and the reception desk so that way, as they come in, it deliberately triggers serotonin in their brain to make them feel calm and at ease. Using the regular kit of parts that we've been using for centuries, right? Compression, color, tension, form, color, texture, whatever. And it turns out that not only is this possible, but there's whole fields of study that have been exploring this for decades. And so what I'm doing is I'm connecting the threads between what's called neuroarchitecture, evidence-based design, sustainability, zero carbon design, uh, materiality. I'm kind of just weaving a thread through all of them to present this idea of a much larger building. It's, it's on the one hand, very, very advanced sounding, but in, in my mind also really quite obvious and simple if you think about it. We feel things in buildings. We do it all the time. How many of us have had a great architectural experience, right? Where you, you walk into a beautiful old theater, you walk into a beautiful old museum and you look around and you're like, wow, that's a feeling, right? It has a physiological effect on us. How many of you have been in a space where you're like, God, this is such a perfect place to do work or to, or to sit or to relax or to rest? How many of you have been to a spa where you're oh gosh, it's so serene in here. It's so calm in here, right? That's the architecture having an effect on you. And all I'm saying is let's do that on purpose. 
let's do that deliberately to target these specific outcomes around health in healthcare or student performance in education or you know collaboration in workspace and design that in as part of our sustainability strategy towards a truly regenerative and restorative space. Okay, so so years ago when we wrapped up The Lazy Environmentalist, I had an opportunity to go pitch more shows to other producers. I was out in LA, and I would go to networks, and I would say, look, I want to do a show. This is not a green show, because this was 2010. We'd just gone through, or we were still going through the recession. Green, so to speak, green media, you know, as, as you well know, like from basically Al Gore's movie in 2006 up through the recession, it was like an explosion of attention. And it was pretty clear that the producers and editors had decided that America was generally tired of talking about green, so they weren't going to do shows anymore. And that's okay. So I would say to producers, look, this is not a green show, that I want to do a show about how you can design schools for better outcomes. Same thing, right? You can design hospitals for, for better, you know, better outcomes and wellness. And, and, you know, some of that was known then. It sounds like what you're describing, Eric, and you could fast forward, you know, just 2023, we probably know a whole lot more, certainly in the implementation. But I was like, this is not a green show, right? And they would be like, yeah, it's still kind of a green show, isn't it, right? And no one really wanted to talk about that. And I couldn't get the frame, the communication frame, to get people excited to say, yeah, we think it... Because I knew that an audience, like you're saying, right, if I'm, a, if I'm a parent and I learn about a school where kids are actually performing better simply because the school's been built differently, I want my kid to go to that school. But I couldn't sell the idea, and it wasn't prevalent then. So what's different today? You're absolutely right. And as always, Josh, you're, you were 15 years ahead of your time, right? <laughs> uh, I, I didn't have the words then either. Uh, I, you know, I was thinking back, well, you know, in the, on the one hand, the stuff I'm talking about now is a very logical conclusion to all the other stuff that I worked on in the past. But I didn't have the words in 2004 or five or six to, to kind of explain this. But what I did have was this foundation of, you know, I remember um, I would sit in meetings with clients. And it started with, I, you know, we'd lay out kind of um, the materials and let's say we're doing their kitchen or whatever. And I'd lay out these materials and I'd be sitting there in meetings thinking, please don't pick that one. Please don't pick that one. You know, like, please don't pick the toxic, icky material. And, <laughs> and I had, a, you know, an epiphany of like, why am I even, why am I even showing it to them? Because, because it's what they expected or because they saw it at, at some showroom or at Home Depot or something. And, and they, you know, they mentioned it, like, isn't my job to push back on them? And I realized that my duty as an architect, and architects are, you know, licensed the same way attorneys and doctors are, that my duty was uh, to make to make bold recommendations to them. So, so the first epiphany that I had, and this is back in probably 2003, was I'm not even going to show them the toxic materials anymore because I just felt like such a, a schmuck just sitting there. You know, why, you know, why am I hoping that they're not going to pick it? Why am I even offering it to them? It just seems dumb. So that was number one. And then number two was the other big epiphany was, you know, I was, I was probably um, a large part of my job is, is talking to facility managers. Those are typically our, our clients that we, you know, talk with day after day. <clears throat> and we had plenty of facility managers said to me to my face, um, I hate sustainability <laughs> or I'm not interested in sustainability. It just, you know, comes with the job. And my, my reaction is always, yeah, me too, man. You know, like I, <laughs> I'm trying to find common ground with them. Yeah. And then I realized it's not my place to sell them on sustainability. They need it, whether they realize it or not. 
their own biases are getting in the way. I'm not here to sell anybody on sustainability. What I'm here to sell them on is the benefits and outcomes that sustainability brings. And if I use sustainability to achieve those outcomes, they're happy. And now there's been, you know, just countless examples of us being in, in rooms with clients where they go, look, we're not interested in lead. We're not interested in some rating system. We're not interested in sustainability. And I go, yeah, okay. But um, are, are you interested in the performance of your students? What are the outcomes that are important to you? And we go through an exercise of mapping out these outcomes. And I call it uh, an outcomes-based approach to sustainability. And it's been kind of the biggest, I think, mindset shift that we've had at our firm in terms of how we talk about sustainability, how we talk about our role in terms of it, uh, how we kind of address it to every client, because in my mind, every single client needs this approach. So that's why we do it on every single project, right? An outcomes-based approach means, tell me the outcomes that are important to you, the killer metrics that would completely make your life better or easier, and then we'll use sustainability to design to, to those outcomes. But again, I didn't have the words 20 years ago that, or, or the clarity of it that I think I have now. Understood. And so in that interaction with your, with your clients, this is uh, really interesting to me. When you're talking about, okay, let, let's talk about these outcomes. Do you, at that point, like, does it, are you messaging around sustainability or are you just saying, great, let's go put together, let's, let's work up some, some documents here and let's, let's put together a blueprint. Like, is there a point in time where you, someone actually has to say, all right, fine, do the sustainability thing, Eric, or are they just, are you just like, <laughs> It's it's embedded, you know. So don't worry about it. Or I mean, is do you need explicit buy-in, um, or is that or is that part of your kind of the educational role or you know the client-facing role that that you play? I mean, they know you're the sustainability guy when right, you walk yeah. in the room, right? So there's like, they're inclined to like, you know, not like you when you walk in, um, or maybe love you one or the other. But they're 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 not going to be um, indifferent to you, right? Just from the from the get-go, but. How does that unfold? What's that journey like to bring a client to a yes? I think that's something that is probably really helpful for us to understand. Oh, okay. Well, so uh, yeah, I'm 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 you know sustainability guy, and the meeting's usually called the sustainability workshop. So they they see this thing appear on their calendar, right? So they they know it's coming, but I think they're often surprised when I go in and I start talking about. Um, um, you know, what's, what's important to you? Uh, what are your priorities? What are your preferences? We go through a series of exercises where I'll, I'll show them a, a series of outcomes and, and they'll have the screen will have these dials. And then right there in the workshop, I'll have them set the dials to what's important. So if it's, if it's a healthcare system, you know, staff retention or infection control or, um, you know, improving patient recovery times or, um, uh, sometimes it's maintenance issues, right? We'll map out these kind of outcomes in advance and I'll have them kind of set the dials and then we'll talk about it. And I'm not, again, I'm not there to just beat them over the head with sustainability stuff. And then when they say, well, how are you going to do that? <laughs> well, we're going to do it with daylighting. We're going to do it with natural materials. We're going to do it with access to views. We're going to really look at acoustics and sound. We're going to play with color. We're going to play with texture. I'm going to use biophilic design. Like we're going to use everything in our toolkit, all, you know, all the arrows in our quiver, so to speak, to do that. And the response is usually one of three. Either, you know, initially it's either we hate sustainability, we don't like lead, go away. Or two, um, well, we ha we were told we have to do this lead rating system. You know, it's just a checkbox, just make it happen. Or three, and this is the more exciting one, 
we have very advanced sustainability goals as an organization. You know, how can this project help us get there? What I've realized is 100% of our clients have some form of sustainability goal. They might not realize it, but they do. It's usually on their website, right? And it's everything from real bold science-based targets that are in alignment with what's going on in their industry to some sort of marketing gobbledygook that they threw on the website 10 years ago and they haven't looked at since and everything in between. But they all have some goal. And so my job is really to say, look, it says on your website you want to be carbon neutral by 2040. How is this project going to help you get there? Let's talk about that. We were doing a project for, um, I, I probably shouldn't say the agency, but a, a federal agency, let's say. And um, there are a number of uh, federal-based guidelines that the uh, General Services Administration ha has around high-performance buildings. There's a number of executive orders that President Biden has signed towards this. So very first meeting, okay, here are the guidelines that we're told we have to follow. Here are the executive orders that our president signed. Uh, this building apparently has to be a net zero project. How can we help you get there? And usually their their face is like, oh, we didn't we we didn't realize that those were in effect. Like, okay, talk to us about it. But we're you know putting them on a journey. So I'm starting. I start with this kind of very large. What are the outcomes and priorities and things that are important to you? And then we get into the weeds of here's how sustainability is going to get you there. And I'm really just building on years and decades of studies showing that. If I add natural daylight to a patient's room, it boosts recovery times. If I add views of nature to a classroom, it boosts student test performance, right? Tried and true studies that have been around for a long time. I'm just tying into them and kind of threading the needle into this is a pathway towards that outcome. Yeah, I, I think it's it's very exciting to me that there is um, more, for whatever reasons, and you, you laid out a number of them, whether it's forced receptivity or you know stated goals of some sort, a real commitment that there you know, this is the way there is that that we are moving. There is a, <laughs> there's always a psychology to it. Um, you know, uh, I, I feel one of my one of my one of my talents, one of my few talents, is that I'm I'm uh, it really comes from my background in comedy, right? Which is reading a room. Right. So I can see when people furrow their brow or crinkle their nose or like recall recoil in horror <laughs> at an idea. And the the kind of inner comic and facilitator in me starts like, OK, let's let's tease that out. Let's pull that out. You made a funny you know, you made a funny face. What did you have something to add to that? You know, um, <laughs> and I do, you know, I, I do about 60 to 70 of these workshops a year, which is more than one a week. I mean, I do the you know, it, you get a lot of practice like reading the room. And so I'm I'm just tapping into normal human psychology. I'll give you I'll give you. Do you want to you want an example? I don't want to just bore you with the story. I would I would love an example. Okay, yeah. Okay. I'll give you I'll give you an easy example. Easy example. Uh, we're doing a big hospital in the Midwest. Uh, it's the largest healthcare system in the state. Uh, their facility manager is you know typical um, you know typical Midwesterner. He's got the sweater vest on. Uh, the collar shirt. He's really good at his job. Like we know, we know this client. We we see this uh, a lot. We know this person really well. I certainly know this person really well. And so, he, he, you know, here's this kind of textbook facility manager. And for his entire career, and he's really good at it, by the way. His entire career has been towards a series of key performance indicators of building. You know, getting all the projects in on budget, uh, keeping the maintenance low. Um, you know, keeping everything on schedule. Nothing to do with sustainability. And now this same person who's been doing his job per really well for 30 years, meeting all those performance requirements, is now having dumped upon him or her 
these new requirements around sustainability that they don't necessarily like, they don't necessarily understand. That's the guy I'm meeting with. And I go in and I go, okay, let's talk about sustainability. And he, and he opens with, I hate sustainability. That was a quote. That's what I'm starting with. Like that's, a, that's, that's what you call a tough room, right? And so my, yeah, that's what you call like, like half my family, but yeah, can, please continue. And so I, that's, you start with that <clears throat> and my reaction, you know, my initial kind of gut response is to find common ground with, with this person. So I go, me too. I hate the term. I hate, you know, how it's been, you know, kind of distorted. Uh, let's talk about that. What drives you crazy in your job, right? You've got a tough job. You got to maintain this giant, you know, campus. What drives you crazy? And he said, oh, you wouldn't understand. I'm like, well, you know, try me. And he said, okay, uh, it drives me nuts that we spend $96,000 a year plowing snow. That's just such a, you know, it's a lot of money. And I could use that money for other things in my budget. But $96,000 a year plowing snow because it's Wisconsin or whatever state we're in. And uh, I said, huh. And then what else drives you crazy? And he's like, well, we have this old steam-fired, you know, central plant, this big boiler plant that makes steam. And, you know, we spend a ton of money keeping it together all the time. I go, oh, really? That's interesting. (laughs) Uh, What else? You know, and he goes on and on. I go, okay, let me get this straight. You have this old steam plant that you got, you know, 20 years of life out of it. And now it's being held together with Band-Aids and Popsicle sticks. You're throwing good money over bad to keep it afloat and keep it running. And you're trying to get another 20 to 30 years out of it. Is that correct? And he said, yeah. And I said, at the same time, you're spending almost $100,000 a year plowing snow. Is that, did I hear that correctly? Yes. Um, okay, what if I told you that I could completely eliminate that snow plowing budget for you? And not only that, but solve all of your, all of your heartache with that old steam, steam fired power plant. Well, how could you do that? Well, there's a system called geothermal. We stick these rods into the ground. Uh, we pull up warm water and we could use that warm water to snow melt your entire campus. We can create snow melt zones with that warm water. That's free, by the way. And by the way, that same geothermal system could also be used for all of the heating and cooling for all of the buildings in your campus. What do you think about that? Is that of interest to you? And he's like, yeah. So now suddenly this guy's my best friend and he loves geothermal. He's really into sustainability, right? Suddenly now, because I've solved a very real problem for him, suddenly he realizes, oh, this is, this is uh, this, the answer to all my, all my prayers, basically, is geothermal. So... It's really about finding what what makes that person tick, what's driving them crazy, what's keeping them up at night. And we have these very frank conversations in these workshops about this. You know, what are you worried about? And the answer to that question is is my is my in. You know, what I often tell my team is pain is the gateway to innovation. <laughs> and you find their pain point and suddenly you can innovate all day long and they'll be very happy that you did it. And so for him, it was $96,000 a year plowing snow. Great. I have an answer for that. For others, it's something else. Wow. Yeah, I love that, Eric. I mean, that's very um, – that, that just makes a ton of sense to me. The, it, re, it reminds me of, you know, back when I had my original radio show and I wanted to do a show on, like, eco-friendly cars pre-Tesla, pre pre-everything. There was a Prius and I didn't really want to talk about the Prius. And we found a a drag car racer out in um, uh, Portland, Oregon, this guy, Plasma Boy, John Whalen, who worked in a warehouse. And he had convinced an engineer to steal all the batteries or borrow the batteries out of a forklift. And they put him in the back of a tiny, tiny 1972 Datsun. (laughs) 
and he's famous. Like he would win like every race at the Portland, you know, drag races. And so we got him on the show and he was going off and he's like, yeah, you know, Josh, this was like amazing. You should have been there Friday night. My little, you know, dots in the white zombie kicked the crap out of this Corvette. And I went up to the driver after and I was like, how do you feel about the fact that I just kicked your butt on a car that runs on American made energy? Right. And it's like zero to 60 in three seconds. And Andrew pounds a torque and he's going on. And, and it was awesome. Right. And then suddenly on this little show, you know, the lights like lit up and we had all these truck drivers going down 995 talking to this guy. like, hey, I want to get this for my pickup truck. Right. And they're like and I just kept thinking like, holy crap, like we're talking about an environmental solution here. I would bet that none of the people calling in are would self-identify as environmentalists. Yet they all love the environmental solution. Right. Because it it's framed in a way that aligns with what they value, which I think is, is essentially what you're helping to find a path for folks in the construction world to do as well. Well, yeah, and also this feeling that, okay, after 50 years of the modern environmental movement, that we have failed, right? We, we ended up in the yeah. exact spot we did not want to be. You know, the first Earth Day was 1970. I was born in 1970, right? So I, like my whole life has been parallel to this, and I'm as guilty of it as anybody, but this idea that we're going to message sustainability on people are going to want to do it and they're going to they're going to think like we are we're going to get them to see our way of thinking was absolutely wrong and uh and failed and and really what we should have been doing is we should have been um really kind of understanding the wants needs and desires uh, of everybody and for me it really started with a number of books including simon sinek's start with why right that book really kind of opened my eyes to this as simple as the premise is like, oh, yeah, of course, let's start with the benefit. Let's lead with benefit. And that, and that, I think that to me did it. You know, so with, with Planted, I know, you know, I was just bringing up to speed on Planted, but what we found when we talk with builders, we, we just signed, for example, you know, DR Horton, largest home builder in the country, is our, our first customer. We're going to come to market with them. And what, what we found was that there was an opening to have that conversation around climate and the environment, right? We have a carbon negative panel. They found us early. We were still developing it. But what one of the things that got them so excited was when we could show them, okay, yeah, this is made from tall perennial grass. It's not trees, and that's really interesting. And here's our how we think about carbon negativity and pulling carbon from the atmosphere, locking away. But we help we we put in the hands of their purchasing execs board samples of what they use today versus our panel after a 24-hour, you know, submersion test in water, and you could see the swelling, right, in the panel they use, the product they use versus what we're doing. And at that moment, at that moment, you know, one of these guys said to us, he's like, look, Josh, I'm, I'm taking everything you guys are ever going to build or every, everything you guys are ever going to make in this factory. I'm buying everything. And we had a tiny, like, 6-foot by 13-inch, right? We didn't really have a lot to sell, but we were like, that's amazing, but it wasn't about, you know, sustainability opened the door, but that relationship has progressed and others progressed because we're trying to solve real problems for builders, not just try to, you know, solve our problem, right? We exist as a company because we want to pull carbon from the atmosphere and lock it away, but we're not asking a customer to meet us there, right? We need a, to deliver to a customer what's going to delight them and solve their pain. Right. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Not only that, you know, back, you know, the, the early, the first half of my career was doing residential. And residential is a lot about psycho- psychology and being a marriage counselor, mostly. <clears throat> and um, um, by the way, gay, gay, straight, doesn't matter. You're, if you're designing a house for a couple, you're a marriage counselor. Uh, so there's that. And, and so much of it is, you know, I'd have, we'd have these gorgeous 
you know, material samples, especially for like a kitchen or bathroom, uh, you know, materials that they come in contact with every day. That's why people have such a visceral reaction to their kitchen countertops because they're touching it every single day and anything you're going to touch every day, you're going to, you're going to take pretty seriously. And, um, and I had materials, you know, there's a company called ice stone, for example, they do, they, they do these gorgeous countertops. They're made of recycled wine bottles and vodka bottles and things like that. Uh, like a, like a terrazzo, but with glass. So it's called Vitrazzo and, and, um, but it's called ice stone. And, um, I would just set that in front of a client. I wouldn't even say anything. And they'd go, oh my God, what is this? This is gorgeous. Like they would just fall in love with it because it's so beautiful. And then afterwards I would say, oh, by the way, <laughs> uh, it's a hundred percent recycled, you know, glass. And in fact, the reason the glass is blue is because it came from an absolute vodka bottle. And then they, they love that. And I found this one-two punch of first they fall in love with the beautiful. They have an emotional reaction of like, me want that. And then I, mm-hmm. they back it up with logic. And oh, by the way, every guest that comes over to their house, they'll tell that story of, see, it's, the glass is blue because it used to be an absolute vodka bottle. Like they love that story. And with your materials, it'd be the same thing. Right. It's 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 beautiful. It's durable. Right. It meets all those requirements, but they want it because it's pretty. And then, oh, by the way, it's made from, you know, 100 percent renewable. Now, you know, uh, you know, it's it's it makes we, we make decisions based on emotion and then we back them up with logic. It's what we it's what we as humans tend to do. So I'm just feeding them that narrative in the right order. And I think you just did the same thing. Yeah. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Of course, then for us, that beautiful panel goes behind, um, you know, it, it goes behind the drywall and a customer is never going to see it. But that's our great, you know, North Star marketing challenge, right? To get people to be, to get a homeowner excited about something they can't even see. Um, perhaps a conversation for another time. But yes, that is absolutely, certainly with, with builders, I think that frame, it, it's, we, we've found that that's, I mean, that's what... You and I go back a long way on this stuff, right? We wouldn't have started the company if we couldn't deliver that kind of that kind of message to a home builder, right? Um, and create that kind of value proposition. So l- let me ask you a couple of things, and, and it kind of goes back to, I think, where some of the conversation started, and and it's been really exciting to dig into, you know, the work that you're so passionate about. But one of the things you said uh, when we started talking a little while ago, Eric, was that. You know, the world, so I'm going to paraphrase a little bit, but the world or, or your clients or the construction world has generally accepted the idea of, you know, net zero or of, of uh, you know, well, maybe I would stop there because you basically said, hey, well, everyone's doing net zero. Let's go look at this next thing. And I know that you're always, you know, pushing in the excitement for you is like not, not just what comes next, but what logic, where we should, where should we be going? But assess for me, if you would, the the state of, and I know you know we're talking about commercial construction perhaps differently than we might talk about residential. But but what really is the state of net zero and and adopting that for uh, you know for new buildings? Well, that's pretty exciting. So uh, <clears throat> let's just start with regular regulatory changes. State of California has already put on a pathway for all new residential buildings to be. Uh, their definition of net zero, which is some solar, some energy storage, like a battery, and all pre-wired for solar. That's already on the books. It's already passed. It was passed, by the way, under Governor Schwarzenegger, a Republican, for the state of California. California is, of course, the sixth largest economy in the world. Its population is bigger than Canada, right? It's uh, our most populous state. But I know people can dismiss it as, oh, those Californians, they're, they're weird. 
okay, then let's look at Chicago with their new energy code or New York with their what's called Local Law 97, which is a carbon budget for every building, or Boston with they have a law called Birdo, which is Building Energy Reduction Ordinance. We're seeing these ordinances pop up all over the place, regulatory requirements and code, because the code officials know very well that we need to get to this net zero future, and we can't do it unless we at least partially regulate it. That's why we've seen uh, states like New York and Washington go full electrification, where they're saying, we don't want fossil fuel infrastructure in our buildings anymore, because it's just going to doom another generation to another 50 years of high emitting materials, uh, uh, buildings, right? So uh, on the regulatory front, there's been a lot of exciting changes. That's number one. Number two is the stakeholder part. Exxon has been sued, I think, four times now by its own shareholders for not disclosing its own climate risk. Um, PG&E lost a lawsuit in Northern California for starting uh, wildfires that were exacerbated by climate change. Uh, we saw here in Portland, where I live, um, they just sued um, Warren Buffett's company, Pacific Corp, I think it's called, for starting the wildfires in 2021. Uh, companies are now being held liable for not taking enough action in, in this. And so we see this as continuing. Then you have it on kind of the financial stakeholder side. The SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission, is putting a proposal that all publicly traded companies are going to have to disclose their, their carbon footprint. They're going to be required. And if the publicly traded companies are doing it, that means the privately traded companies are going to start to do it to prepare. And even if they don't do it in the U.S., they're already requiring it in Europe. So across all of those buckets, code regulatory, stakeholder engagement, and financial regulatory, we've seen this push for you need to get to net zero as soon as possible. We can't wait till 2030 or 40 or 50. You need to be on a pathway to do it now. So that's been the tonal shift that we've seen just in the last three years. I mean, hell, we had projects that we started three years ago. We started designing them three years ago, right? There are five different hospitals I'm thinking of right now, and I won't name their names, where three years ago we did a design. I did a sustainability workshop. They said to me, go away. We're not interested in sustainability. And we said, well, we're doing this anyway, and found kind of the low-hanging fruit for them. It's now three years later, and the project's starting construction. And now they're saying, look, we know three years ago we told you to bug off, but uh, suddenly now – we're getting a lot of pressure from our board and our executive leadership team to embrace sustainability. Is there, what can we do on this project now that's under, you know, in construction? What a mindset shift. What happened in three years that went from, no, thank you, we're not interested, go away, to, oh my God, quick scramble and do everything, everything you can. That's, maybe the pandemic had part of it, uh, but I also think that in that three years, people really started to feel firsthand the, the effects of climate change. And I, I think it kind of woke up everybody in a way that as much as I'd like to think Al Gore's movie kind of woke up people, it didn't seem to stick, right? You know, not being able to go outside for two weeks because of wildfires will wake up uh, people to climate change in a way that no amount of education can. Wow. Um, yeah, thank you for that summation. That's uh, certainly very heartening to hear. Um, well, it's, and it's cool to get your perspective on, on what you have see happening in the market today and what's happened over the last few years. I want to just bring this back also to the idea of um, something that you've mentioned and something that's important to us on this podcast around embodied carbon, which seems to be uh, kind of what's coming next in terms of the, the 
the carbon footprint of a building. And in some respects, it seems like the most obvious, um, or, or maybe that's just from where I sit, but if you think, okay, if we're going to decarbonize uh, you know, our economy, we're going to decarbonize our civilization, and we make and move and build with really heavy things, unless those we zero out the footprint of those things, we're not really going to solve climate change. Right? That would be impossible. Um, so wh- how would you assess you know, the way the industry is thinking about you know, embodied carbon? And maybe second question, you can answer them in any, order, in any order, is embodied carbon a good term? Does anybody know what that means? Yeah. So embodied carbon is, in the industry, it's a good term because we all, we all know what it is and we all agree on what it's referring to. My friend Lloyd Alter, uh, who used to write for Treehugger, he calls it upfront carbon. And I think that's a better term. Uh, because it really describes it's this is the carbon that you're going to release up front right in the manufacture of, of these products and it, you know it, it's funny I, I would say that we largely ignored embodied carbon or upfront carbon for a long time i mean energy modeling of buildings for the operation of the building we've been doing that since the 70s in some form uh, and now you know basically we realized wait a minute that's only half the equation right the building that's that you know the energy the building is going to consume when it's open is one thing but what about all the emissions associated with building that thing, especially the steel, the concrete, the aluminum, and the glass? Those four materials in particular are responsible for 85% of that upfront carbon, that you know, embodied carbon, right? Kind of massive. So, you know, embodied carbon is a good term, but upfront carbon is probably technically more accurate. And then now, uh, I think uh, what we're seeing is is uh, we don't want to wait another 30 years to get good at embodied carbon the way we got good at operational carbon. <clears throat> so in a certain sense, we've learned and accelerated. And just in the last five years, we went from nobody's measuring embodied carbon at all. We, it, we've, it's, it was an oversight to, you know, our firm is doing it on hundred percent of our projects and we're finding pathways to choose either lower carbon steel, lower carbon concrete, or better yet, uh, zero carbon bio-based materials. And, and now we have databases and environmental product declarations and tools and resources that we didn't have just a few years ago to do this now. And it's kind of amazing. But even just on a, you know, stepping back to just a much more logical idea, if you look at all life on Earth, and that's all we have is the Earth, right? If you look at all life on Earth, 83% of it is plant. It's plant life. Another 13% or so, 13, 14% is bacteria. Um, animals... Are half of one percent, like we're just we're infinitesimally small on this big ball of life that we float around on, and so if you need to build a lot of buildings <coughs> for animals, mostly humans, right? Um, do you build it out of this kind of dwindling resource called fossil fuels that we're running out of and is slowly polluting and you know killing us, or maybe do you use the two most abundant materials on Earth, plants and bacteria? which we just have an abundance and we can keep growing. And so that alone makes me think, oh yeah, we need to be building out of bio-based things that we grow. We need to grow building materials. And I'm not just talking about trees. I'm talking about everything and anything. And then we need to you know, use these naturally carbon sequestering things to make bio-based panels, bio-based finishes, bio-based underlayments, bio-based sheathing, bio-based structure, bio-based everything. The bio-based is our future. And it, it almost has to be. 
because we're going to run out of ore, we're going to run out of Portland cement, we're going to run out of sand if we keep building the way that we have been. Yeah, thank you for that. <laughs> I think that's a good place for us to bring bring this conversation uh, to a close. Um, thank you for for sharing your your insights uh, with us and and with me today. I, I thoroughly enjoyed getting a chance to talk with you and hear about you know the amazing work you're doing um, and your perspective on all of it, which I, I deeply appreciate. Where can people find more information about you? Ah. Of course, we'll link to it, but where would you, where do you want to call people oh, or, or direct our listeners? You're so nice. Um, uh, let's see. You can, uh, our main firm website is canondesign.com. You can kind of see our global ambitions and how we're designing to meet these global ambitions, we call it, which is a very different way of looking at design and design problems that we're facing. Canondesign.com. <clears throat> and then I'm on, you know, the Twitter and the Facebook and all that other business as Eric Corey Freed, if you want to find me there. Um, and then if you, um, if you're looking for kind of like books about, uh, um, you know, this, this thing I'm talking about, one of my favorite ones is called Biomimicry by Janine Benius, where she talks about, you know, designing by nature. There's another one called Biophilic Design by Stephen Kellert that gets into how designing with nature in mind achieves these outcomes. Those are, you know, um, they're relatively old books now. I think Biomimicry was 2002. Kellerts was even earlier than that. But they're, they're, they're foundational knowledge for getting into this. And every one of my grad students that I turn on to this, they just become obsessed with it. So, um, you know, I'll leave you with those two. Thank you, Eric. I appreciate those, those recommendations as well. And I think that is a very good place to bring to an end this episode because this is, these are the tools we need to build a movement, wouldn't you say? Absolutely. Thank you so much for letting me uh, rant. <laughs> That's a wrap for the show. I think my biggest takeaway from Eric is how important communicating, framing, and tying self-interest to zero-carbon solutions is to create buy-in and move us forward toward a world that stands in balance with nature. For more insights and conversations like this one, visit our website at plantedmaterials.com blog. Follow us on Instagram at plantedmaterials. You can also find us on LinkedIn and Facebook. See you next time.